All right, if you would be turning your Bibles to Esther chapter 1, verses 10 through 22. I just want to, by way of reminder, remind us that, that there is a lot of irony and comedy and sarcasm in the book of Esther uh, that is worthy of note, uh, a way in which the, the Jews were able to laugh and push back against the darkness and recognize that, that the, the murderous tendencies of others don't have the final say. Now, that doesn't mean that the murderous tendencies of others have not uh, damaged and destroyed many lives. We, we have to take that part seriously, which we'll see in the quote from uh, Michael V. Fox. But it is important that we recognize that, that these things aren't ultimate, right? No matter how dark the darkness grows, they are not ultimate. Uh, it is not ultimate. And that is good news to us. And we want to be able to see in contrast to the earthly foolishness that is displayed by King Blockhead, King Hardhead, Ahasuerus, we want to be able to see that our king, our God, is completely different. And so this is by way of contrast that we'll see uh, what we see here this morning. As we see the foolish results of the garish celebrations of a fool, it's going to, it's going to result in the exile of the beloved. So uh, the key truth that I would love for us to walk away with this morning is that God hospitably calls us through the various means of grace to enjoy him as his beloved children. Let me say that again. God hospitably calls us through the various means of grace to enjoy him as his beloved children. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Esther 1, 10 through 22. And let me just say, there's a lot of really good boy baby names that are going to be in this chapter, so be watching for those. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, For this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Hashuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come this very day. The noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. 
and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king said, as Mamukin proposed, he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in, his, in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we step into this, I want to ask you, because we've been talking about how the book of Esther is designed to help them celebrate the festival of Purim, which was very interactive, very raucous, uh, very celebratory food and drink and presents and dressing up and interactivity uh, with uh, the material as it was read. What should be the focus and results of godly celebrations? Now, this may feel like a duh question, but I think we've got to ask it because I really think the problem is I don't know that we recognize what godly celebrations are. I think we reserve them. There's a sacred-secular divide. We reserve them for maybe the the accepted holy days, uh, Christmas and Easter and maybe a few other things. But the real reality is every time Christians gather in any circumstance, to celebrate anything, it should be a godly celebration, shouldn't it? Right? Because we represent the king. And how can we celebrate something that is good and not recognize that God is glorious in providing it for us? Even if it's your birthday, another year of life is a gift from whom? Who numbered your days? God did. Now, here's what I didn't just say that you can't have fun and you can't laugh and it must be dour and solemn. No, that is not it at all. In fact, it is to help give you some banks of the river so that you can rightly enjoy and rightly be able to receive the good from the Lord's hand. This is also for our joy as well. Laughter, if we don't learn anything else, laughter is a key component. In fact, I don't, you can't call it a means of grace per se, but it's a result of grace, is it not? G.K. Chesterton was one of the greatest at this. Jane Austen was fantastic at humor, right? The book of Emma, one of the finest written in this regard. Uh, the turn of phrase, and the, the, that's one of the few times you'll hear me talk about Jane Austen. Uh, <laughs> mark it down, mark it down. It's a great book. Uh, and so it is very important that, that we recognize that humor is one of the ways in which if, if we laugh, that means that we recognize that this fallen world doesn't have the final say. It's one of the, in fact, what's interesting is when the Nazis were persecuting the Jews and, and putting them in concentration camps, there was one thing that they did not want them to have. One really important thing, not other than the obvious stuff, obviously guns and knives and all this other stuff, but there was one thing that they were afraid of. This is a very interesting thing. Do you know what it is? The book of Esther. They, if they found it in the possession of the Jews, they would deal with it with extreme prejudice. So what did the Jews have to do? Memorize. So that it couldn't be taken from them, and they could encourage one another. This was one of the great ways in which they encouraged each other uh, in in circumstances, because they knew there would come a day, hopefully, if they lived through it, where they could laugh at the fool who thought he could rule the world. 
And so as we step into this, we want to keep that in mind and be looking for not just at the earthly king and his foolishness. This isn't morality. We're not trying to gain morality out of this, although there is something to be said to husbands at the very end about what it means to be the head of the household. I'll get to that at the end. Uh, But it is important that we recognize this is helping us to see who the Lord our God is in comparison to the earthly king. So let's step back into the text and see the fool manipulated at the cost of the beloved. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, let me pause here. Now, not every time in Scripture where it says the heart is merry doesn't mean that one is drunk. You have to look at context. So the context here is the king has been drinking for at least 187 days straight. So given the context, what say ye about the nature of his wisdom at this point? It was bad from the start. Old King Blockhead didn't have a whole lot to give in the first place, and I don't think it improves with him being drunk. So he's drunk. And he says to Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abtha, Zethar, and Carcass, which are the eunuchs, go get the queen. Now think about this for a second. Why didn't Ahasuerus go and welcome his wife to the party? So there's a sense in which you can almost feel this is kind of offensive. He sends seven people to, to bid her come. And the whole reason that he wants her to come, which is debated as to the nature of it, but what we do know for, beyond a shadow of a doubt is he was wanting to show her off. Some wonder if the mention of just the crown, what was she supposed to be nude? We don't know, can't say for 100%, but either way, this is a commodified uh, 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 reason for him wanting to put her before the people. He's not putting her before the people because she's lovely in and of herself or a great, great queen or intelligent or a wonderful spouse. No, this is about a king of Hashuaris. And so she says no. We don't know why she said no, but she said no, which... Again, this is where Proverbs is helpful. Did she assume she had some power that she didn't have? Did she think that she was going to be able to get away with Was she hoping that he's drunk, he'll sleep it off, and he'll forget about it? Well, that is a failure to understand the nature of empires. No slight goes unpunished. Especially when this guy's been celebrating how amazing he is, which he's not, by the way. He didn't earn any of this stuff. It was given to him by Darius I, if you remember. So he's earned none of this. He's, all he can really celebrate is that his dad was a good man toward him. But that's not what he does. He takes credit for it, right? Because he sees himself a god. And so Vashti, in her refusal, sets the king to rage. And if you remember, Vashti means in Persian, quite possibly, beloved. And so in his rage, he turns to the princes because he can't make a decision for himself, apparently, and he himself doesn't really even know the law. So he turns to them and he asks, huh, so what's the law on this? What can we do? And Mamukin takes the opportunity. You always have opportunists in empires, Right? If you read any history, there's always an opportunist looking for a way in which to gain influence and to put forward their ideas, even though they're not in charge. So Mamukin says, well, <laughs> I think we've got a bigger problem than just Queen Vashti, by the way. I think we have an empire-wide problem. When women hear about this, they're going to go crazy. It's going to be the first feminist wave known in history. 
and it's going to be terrible. It's going to ruin the empire, all the benefits of empire. Why are we in charge if the women can do and say whatever they want? So the rise of the patriarchy, and it had always been there, but this was a restatement of it in some ways. And patriarchy, by the way, isn't bad every time the word is said. But in this case, it was to the denigration of the very women who make the empire possible in its future and present, by the way. And so Mamukin takes and puts this thing on steroids, and the king loves it. He's like, oh, this is just going to show my power over these 127 provinces. Now, what's the likelihood that he would be able to enforce this law across the 127 provinces? And what's even more interesting is the punishment for Queen Vashti, which is interesting. If you were paying attention, she loses that title when the edict is given for her punishment. She will no longer be referred to as queen, which is a, a kind of a telling thing within the story. She doesn't get to come before the king anymore. So here's the equivalent. So let's just say that one of the Wilson boys gets told, go cut the grass. And they say, no, I ain't cutting the grass. And then Adam in great wisdom decides, well, I tell you what, you're never going to be able to cut grass again, young man. That is your punishment. Now, children of the church, please do not try this at home, okay? It's bad. It's unwise. And I don't think it's going to go the way you think it's going to go. And so, so the king essentially tells Vashti, you don't have to ever see me again. You don't ever have to be treated as a commodity. You don't ever have to not be the beloved. I send you into exile where you'll be fed and taken care of and part of the whole thing. But, but you're done. Now, granted, she, I'm sure, lost some privileges that may have been good in many ways, but the punishment's foolish, right? You, you get to not do the thing you didn't want to do for the rest of your life. He's an idiot in some ways, right? This is just foolishness. And then to try to extend it out into the kingdom as if this was a problem in the first place, as if those who are in relationship with their husbands were just looking for ways out. That would not be true across the empire, I'm sure, just as it's not true here. And so they, they, they try to put something on them that makes no sense at all. And notice he uses that term, let every man be the master of his house. Now, I want to take a pause here and talk about how Jesus comes to do what? If we're going to use the terms of servitude, what did it say he came to do? To serve, not to be served, right? He came to lay down his life for the betterment of the church, to give away everything he had so that his bride, his beloved, would be able to take joy in who and whose they are, right? An exact no price in return, other than relationship, by the way, who wouldn't want to be in relationship with someone who thinks that way, who's always got your greatest good and the power to bring it about. And then Paul, Paul, Ephesians 5, says that we are to love uh, as heads of the household, our wives as Christ loved the church, not as masters and tyrants over empire but as ones who want our spouses and children to be able to know the depths and the beauty of the glory of God because they too are loved. And we will lay down our lives in any form and fashion to see that that happens. 
to ensure that our spouses, that our children know that they are image bearers. VeggieTales gets this very wrong. It's actually for chapter 2, and I'm going to steal some of Robbie's thunder because I think he was going to play the video for you. But basically, Ahasuerus says to Esther, make me a sandwich. And that's not exactly what happens. However, they were on to something because that's the kind of stuff that I think too often we think head of the household means that you are due certain privileges that are to be done without question across your 1,800 square foot or 2,000 square foot or 3,000 square foot empire. But you are afforded certain things in ways that don't ask whether or not it is diminishing the image of the, your co-heir. And so we want to not look like the Medes and the Persians. We want to look like Jesus. Now, I could end the sermon there, but I won't. Now, back to how God looks very different than this foolish king Ahasuerus. Notice that the Lord, in his grace, invites us over and over and over again in so many ways to taste and see that he is good, to come before him and have ourselves built up, not torn down. He never calls us before him to denigrate us for what we haven't done. He calls us before him to be forgiven for all that we have not done and to be granted grace so that we might do what we have the opportunity to do and get to do in participating in his kingdom and growing in our understanding of who and whose we are. He never puts us on blast or on display in a way that is intended to destroy or tear down or in any way, shape, or form make him seem like anything other than a loving father. It is a loving thing that he does even in disciplining us. Why does he discipline us? For our good, the same as we as parents do for our children, hopefully. And it's always restorative. Notice Ahasuerus, he gets angry. She's gone. There is not, he lets somebody else make the decision. In fact, it affects the entire empire, his anger does. I imagine that many men across the empire, when they received this letter, began to function in ways that was animalistic and barbaric. They had the law on their side. And so we have a king who calls us to a different kind of love, a different kind of rule, a different kind of headship. And we want to reflect that. We want to participate in that. Think about how the Pharisees, very similarly, instead of receiving the Messiah, Jesus, crucified him because they wanted to prove that he was anything but a king. And what did they do? The exact opposite. What greater king can you have than the one that rises from the dead and takes the keys of hell in his very hands? who can make the dead rise with him in resurrection power to transform lives, to forgive sins, to ascend to the right hand of the Father where he continues to intercede without fail or weariness. And then he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to lead and guide and glorify not just him but us too, by the way. And he prays for us when we fail constantly interceding and groaning on our behalf when we don't have it to give because we 
are loved. No distinction between the co-heirs in this regard. None. Let's not act like there is. Let's not live like there is. And so, here we are on the precipice, while there's much to lampoon and laugh at, by virtue of what we have now seen, there's a storm coming in the kingdom. Michael V. Fox, I think, says it well in his book, Character and Ideology in the Book of Esther. He says, soon our amusement at the display of wealth and the bumptious machissimo. I love that term. I don't think we use bumptious near enough in our culture. I'm bringing it back. Bumptious machissimo of the Persian nobleman will clash with and thus sharpen our horror as we see pride, egotism, and royal instability mutate into murderous hatred and sinister schemes against a people absent from the opening act. So my question to you is, do you avail yourself of the many ways in which God invites you to enjoy him as his beloved child? Notice that one of the reasons that Christ died, stated in Hebrews chapter 4, is so you and I could go straight to the throne of grace. No mediator, no stops. Paul said it. He said, we have been made at peace with God. Romans 8, there is now therefore no condemnation for us. We get to go before the creator of the universe. Why does that not move us more than it does? Well, that's the question. I don't think it's the creator's problem. Think of worship week in and week out where he says, I will gather with you, my people. I will make known to you what you need in and through my word. And again, be careful of the unbearable weight of meaning making, thinking that everything's got to be awesome. If everything's awesome, it is. Well, it's a Lego movie, but it's not awesome, right? And so it is important that we recognize that sometimes it's like water over a rock, and sometimes it takes years for you to look back and be able to appreciate all that he was doing over that time. Even though you didn't walk out necessarily every week thinking, wow. Think about how his word is given to you. We, in history, have more access to God's word than at any other point in history. You have it on your phone, which is always, for most of you, on your person. There is, you don't have to carry giant, like a giant Bible around. You don't even have to leave it in the back of your car to curl up so people know you're holy. You know, it curls up because you haven't gotten it out of the back of your window and used it in a while. And so, we have access to so much. Think of all the apps to help us to pray, to help us to consider things. If you want to do the daily offices, which is not just for one denomination. We have more helps than at any time of any people in history. And we ought to know because of history more and more examples of the love of God playing out in and, in and through real time in history. We ought to be the ones who know we are most loved of all. As we sit right now, we've got more data points than anybody's come before us, don't we? And the generations following will as well until Christ returns. And so don't hear this as you, you must go and do more stuff. No. I'd rather you do less stuff and better know you are loved than do more stuff and feel good about what you're doing or bad about what you didn't do. And, and then what helps you to best experience your beloved reality in Christ? What are the things that help you to know that? Make use of those things, right? Encourage one another in this regard. 
Help the, the, the people around you know how much they mean. I was with a group uh, called the Greensboro Fellows this, this past um, weekend. Ah, uh, here it comes. Um, and there's a young lady in the group who has cerebral palsy. Her name is Callie. That group would be a way different group if Callie were not in that group. It made them uh, much more mindful. Like the, It was astonishing to see college students, which you guys get a bad rap. You're better than we give you credit for. But it was astonishing to see how mindful they were of this young lady in so many ways. Not just in the obvious ways, but in the subtle and small things. And how gracious she was. She stayed in the mix. She, she cut up. She, she, I mean, it was just a, a beautiful thing to, to behold. And they did such a good job of, by virtue of her presence, being much more mindful even of one another and the love that they expressed for each other, and the way they built each other up, how gracious they were to me. Think about how easy it is for a group of college students who've never met a 51-year-old guy before who shows up looking like I do and not be creeped out. Right? In some way. The creep factor between old and young is just one of those things. can be. But fortunately, I don't come off as terribly creepy to, by my lights and their testimony. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was wonderful to be able to witness how one person, the presence of one person who could do less than anybody in the room from a physical perspective made a phenomenal difference in their understanding of who and whose they were. How much more could we do with what we have, all the resources we have? So what encourages you in that regard? Turn to it often. I'm going to pray, and then Josh is going to come up. We'll have one more song. Uh, and then we'll take about, uh, I'll give you the, the announcements and the benediction, and we'll take about a 10-minute break to get the computer set up for the slides, and then Jonathan and I will walk you through uh, the history of God's faithfulness here at Christ Community Church. I think it's just important sometimes to gain perspective, uh, and then uh, tell you what, what we're looking for out of this meeting, and then Jonathan will share with you about assets, hindrances, and potential decisions. Just so I'm clear, this is a non-anxious opportunity for us to update you on where we are and think about, all right, what direction would be good for us to go in? We're seeking wisdom from you. You'll have an opportunity at the end of the meeting for comments and, and questions and answer. You'll have an opportunity to fill out a survey that'll go out Monday, so you'll, you'll have a chance to speak in that way. You can reach out. This is just, we're just trying to keep you in the loop. We just realize that we get to talk about it all the time as elders. And it's not necessarily that we've, we've done, it's not that we've done a terrible job, it's just that we want, to, we want you to know what we've been through so, uh, and, and what we've come up with. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a loving king. You're a good king. You rule with justice and kindness and goodness and love. Thank you that we are not left only to the earthly kings who don't ever. In that, and they can't because they are not you. God, thank you that Jesus came and died for us and rose again and broke the bonds of sin and death so that we could walk in newness of life now. This isn't just a future reality. We actually get to walk in a way now that was impossible for us as we walked in death and gave ourselves over to the forces of death. God, thank you that you indwell us with the Holy Spirit, we have a constant reminder. We don't even need the phone in our pocket per se, but that's an added benefit. But we have the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and to remind and to pray and to convict. 
Thank you that we can come before you, the creator of the universe, and be in your presence and receive what we need so desperately so many times. Thank you that we have constant reminders and opportunities around us through the means of grace, through community, through just different ways in which you work in this world. Thank you that you are so loving and so gracious, and you do not treat us as commodities, but as children who you deeply love. In Christ's name, amen.